today, we're going to talk about trusting God when, uh, when you realize you're not in control. We're going to talk about control. So how many of you would admit that you are a control freak? Oh, I love it. You're, you're out there saying, I, I am. I am. I had a girlfriend that she moved into a home, and she had boxes and boxes and boxes. And so I showed up, and I said, hey, I'm here to help you unpack. And she goes, you can't help me. I said, why not? She goes, I'm too much of a control freak. You'll hate me by the end of the day, so just go home. I did. She kicked me out because she said I could not help her because she had to have so much control. Why do you think that we become these control freaks? Why do you think that that's what we do? I think, I think it's because if you're not careful, the task of controlling can end up owning you more than what you're trying to control, right? Control is directly related to trust. You and I want to control a situation because we don't trust that the outcome is going to be what we want it to be. We want to control a person because we don't think they're going to do it the right way, or at least they're not going to do it our right way, and our way is the right way, right? So we try to control the person. Or we're afraid that if we don't have control, somebody might hurt us, and we don't want to get hurt. So if we control every situation, everything that's going on, then maybe we can't get hurt. And the worst thing that can happen is if, if we are afraid of getting hurt, we, we decide that, you know what, I'm going to get hurt on my own terms. So we dump a really good person. We remove a relationship with a really awesome person because we're so sure that at any moment they're going to figure out that we're just like not okay or not worthy or whatever. So we'd rather dump them and kick them out of our life first because if they're going to hurt us, it's on our terms. And that, that's the enemy, just completely manipulating us. But it's what we do. <clears throat> and it's because we don't trust. Why do we do that? We struggle with trust. And so today we're going to talk about trusting God when you're not in control. And the truth of it is, We never are in control. We never are. And we're not even designed to be in control. And did you know that the entire gospel is based on the fact that man no longer trusted God and we got separated because of it? We stopped trusting that God could control our lives in a much better way than we could. And that is where the gospel began because that's where we got separated. It starts in the Garden of Eden with a really weird conversation between Eve and a snake. In Genesis 3, 1 through 7, it starts with, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Of course, the enemy's going to pick the most crafty. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Well, well we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say we must not eat from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. She says, you must not even touch it or you will die. Now, if you look at the original scripture, it doesn't say don't touch it or you'll die. But honestly, if God tells you not to go near something, I'm okay with that. Don't touch it. Just leave it alone. It's safer for us. And the enemy is trying to manipulate her into thinking, are you sure you can trust God? Because I'm not so sure that you're understanding what he really wants you to do. And why is he asking you to do that? 
Serpent says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's basically saying, why are you trusting God? I think he's trying to keep something great from you. Why would you trust him? She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. That was way too easy to do. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The moment that we stopped trusting God, what showed up? Shame, fear, insecurity, blame, because you go to read on and they're blaming each other, anxiety, all these things showed up when we stopped trusting God. And ever since the garden, God has been trying to reestablish trust with you and me. So trust, let's talk about it. There's something incredible that happens when you're in a relationship that has great trust. Don't you love it when someone says, well, you know, where's your husband? Is he, is he late? Yeah, it's all right. I trust him. It's all good. Well, didn't you ask your daughter to do like these three things and she only did like two of them? What would it be? You know what? I trust her. I'm sure something happened. Something came up. I tr- Don't you love a great relationship of trust that it's just, it's easy peasy. It's all good because you trust each other. When your boss, you know, you mess up a project, your boss is like, you know what? I bet she had an off day because I trust her. She's really, she's good at her job and she takes it to heart. There's something wonderful about having a relationship with someone that always, that trusts you, that gives you the benefit of the doubt. A relationship that has great trust is a great relationship. And the best way to trust someone is to trust them. You say, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. Trust them. So we are going to read out of the Word. I hope you have your Bibles with you or you have an app with you. We're going to read out of the Word. We're going to read the story of Joseph. So go to Genesis 37 for me. I'm going to give you a chance to go there. Genesis 37. If you don't have a Bible, cozy up next to someone who does. All right, starting in verse 37. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Basically, Joseph tattled on his brothers. That's just kind of what he was doing. And um, then he started to tell them all about all these. He had a whole bunch of dreams. And in all these dreams, it was that, that everything and everyone was going to be bowing down to Joseph. And he kept telling his brothers and his dad all about these dreams, that everybody's bowing down to him. So basically, the, the, the brothers do not like Joseph anymore. Go to verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Israel is his dad. It used to be Jacob and it got changed to Israel. Israel is Joseph's dad. And he says to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So the story tells us that Joseph headed to Shechem, but when he got there, his brothers were not there. They had gone on to Dothan. And I'm sure he's already going, I'm going to tattle on you. You're in the wrong town. 
So in verse 17, it says, So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Wow. Wow. Let's go to verse 20. Come now. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into a cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben's the oldest brother, and it, I mean, it tells us that he's, he's like, well, don't kill him, just throw him into a cistern. Come on, you let your brother throw him into a cistern. That's your baby brother. Anyway, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. You know, the robe of many colors. They call it the ornate robe he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Oh, well, thank goodness there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah, who's another brother, says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And so the brothers agreed. Oh, they took such pity on him. Let's sell him. Let's make some money on him. Why not? Sounds like a good plan to me. <laughs> Verse 28. So when the Midianite, wait, Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver, good Tuesday for them, to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? I'll tell you where you can turn now. Go tell your father what your brothers did. He doesn't do that. He's a coward. I'm sorry. I'm mad at Reuben right now. Verse 31, <laughs> then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. It goes on to say that the father just mourns and cannot be comforted. I can't even imagine. But if you think of Joseph too, he is 17 years old. And his brothers just sold him off into slavery. He has got to be terrified. And it's, I mean, it's very clear he has no control over this situation. So jump with me over to uh, Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Look at Genesis 39, verse 2. I want to show you something. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord, just stop right there for a second. Do you think that Joseph felt like the Lord was with him? No. He was probably terrified and scared. The Lord is with us whether we feel him or not. The Lord is with us when we're scared and when we're 
prospering. But it says the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. He's in a place he had no control over how he got there, but God was there with him. He wasn't alone. God was there with him. All right, let's continue. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Potiphar is a smart man. You and I could be very, very smart. When we see that the Lord is with somebody, go with them. Follow. He was now, Potiphar is now blessed because he says, oh, the Lord is with Joseph. So you know what? You got free reign here. He gave him full reign of his home. Verse 6. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He doesn't think he would be sinning against Potiphar. He knows he would be sinning against God. I love how he takes such ownership of his job. And of what he's been asked to do. When somebody trusts you with that, be trustworthy. And that's what he was doing. And he also, again, he recognized that if he did sleep with Potiphar's wife, he wasn't even sinning against Potiphar as much as he was sinning against God. Verse 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. The story goes on to say that Potiphar's wife eventually accuses Joseph of trying to rape her. Um, go to verse 17. Then she told him, Potiphar, uh, actually I think it's one of Potiphar's attendants, told him this story. That Hebrew slave that you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me? He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. The kings back then had their very own prison. So anybody that was in that particular prison worked in the palace with the king. Has anybody ever lied about you? And you had to suffer consequences because the truth never did come out. And you feel completely helpless, don't you? You're like, I have no control. They can just keep lying about me all they want. And the truth of it is, I can't convince everybody to believe that I'm telling the truth. That happens to every single one of us. And the consequences for Joseph was he got thrown in prison for a lie that did not get rectified. So let's look at the second half of verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, what does it say? The Lord was with him. Now he's in prison. And the Lord is still with him. He showed him 
kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison ward. Well, now he's in charge of the whole prison because the Lord was with him. And now he has great favor in the prison. Uh, Let's go to verse 22. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Again, very smart people put in trust things to someone who they know that the Lord is with. And here we are again. Genesis 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. He was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. So Joseph is now in charge of the cupbearer and the baker from Pharaoh's home. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who had been held in prison, had a dream, and the same night, they had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. Understand that back then the way that God spoke to people was through prophets and through dreams. And the people that could interpret the dreams were prophets as well. And Joseph was clearly had God with him. And he said, well, God's the one that interprets dreams and God is with me. So let me interpret your dreams. The story goes on to tell us that he interprets both of their dreams and the the cupbearer gets the great news that he is going to regain um, his, his standing in the house with Pharaoh. The Pharaoh's going to like him again. He's going to let the cupbearer back into the palace, and he's going to be, it's all going to be good again. So Joseph says, hey, you're going back to the palace. When you get there, would you do me a favor? Would you tell Pharaoh about me, that I'm, I'm here in prison and I'm a good guy? Would you tell him about me? He goes back and he doesn't tell him. He's, he, he forgets to tell Pharaoh, but he does end up going back. Well, the baker did not get such good news. The baker, um, I hate to tell you, you're going to die. The, the, the Pharaoh's going to impale you, so you don't have to do anything for me. Just be on your merry way. So the baker gets <laughs> murdered, gets killed, but the cupbearer gets to go back and be with Pharaoh. And he was there for two years before anybody said anything. So if we fast forward through the story, one day Pharaoh wakes up and he has a dream and he's looking around for somebody to interpret his dream. And all of a sudden the cupbearer goes, oh, hey, I know a guy. He's in your prison. Go get him. So they go and they bring Joseph in. They summon him in and ask him if he will interpret the dream. And, and in a nutshell, basically what he says is, so for the next seven years, you are going to have 
crops that are plentiful. You're going to have a lot of grain and so many crops that you'll have enough for years and years and years. But the seven years after that is going to be a famine. You're not going to have enough. So this is what you should do, Joseph and his business strategy. The first seven years, you should store away lots of crops, lots of grain, and go to all the people outside and tax them a portion of their grain so that you can store it. And then in the second seven years, you will have plenty, and then you will sell back the grain to the people that come because they don't have enough food. You'll sell it back to them. And a good businessman knows that you put a good person in charge of this. And he says, oh, okay, I'll put you in charge of this, Joseph. And Joseph moves in with Pharaoh to take care of this 14-year plan. Isn't that great? (laughs) So let's go to... Genesis 41, beginning in verse 46. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he started this when he was 17, and now he's 30. And Joseph went out of Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. So he's free. He's free to come and go as he wants. What I love is that He's now 30 years old, and, that, and although he had a really rough beginning, look at the career that God has now given him. Look at the, the beautiful places that, that God has turned out of ugly places, and he's taken such good care of Joseph. And verse 50 says that before the famine, he married and he had a couple of kids. And when he named these kids, he named them to glorify God. I want to show you this in verse 51. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, Manasseh, and said, look at this, it is because God has made me forget all of my troubles and all of my father's household. You and I are always looking for ways to forget all of our troubles, to forget our hurt to forget our past. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. And and things like counselors, I I love. They're great. There are times that you have to to go to a doctor and he's got to do something to help you. But we also self-medicate. And we also let ourselves be over-medicated by a doctor. If you're doing all these things to forget your past and to forget your troubles, please know God is the ultimate healer. God is the one that can take our troubles and turn them into something good. And here it is. Joseph is now praising God for helping him, for taking away the pain of his troubles and having him forget about the hurt of his family. Then he goes to Then he goes to, in verse 52, he names his second son. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my sufferings. Again, I want you to look at this. Fruitful in the land of his sufferings. I don't know about you, but I go, go, Lord, get me out of this. I don't want to suffer anymore. Get me out of this. And God says, how about I just get in it with you? Let me in it with you. Because if I'm in it with you, 
all the things we can do, the things we can do. But we beg God to get us out of our mess. And the thing of it is, fruitful doesn't always mean money. Fruitful can mean things like he gives you peace in the midst of chaos. That he gives you wisdom when, you are, when you're lacking um, understanding. He can give you courage in the middle of fear. He can give you patience in the middle of whatever prison you are in. Uh, last week I was in Texas with my, um, with my daughter and my new little four-month-old grandson. And if any of you have ever been to Texas or if you lived in Texas, you'll know that the weather is way unpredictable. You have no idea what's going to happen. So we had just come from church, and we're heading to a town that's about 40 minutes away, uh, Frisco, because they have this chicken place called Babe's Chicken. It's supposed to be just this outstanding chicken. And as we are driving, so we're in this big, uh, I don't know, this big giant SUV of a car. My, my daughter and her husband are in the first two seat. The middle row is myself, my little grandson, and then um, my daughter's mother-in-law. And then in the way back is my other daughter, my younger daughter. And we're driving through, and all of a sudden we're on the freeway, and the sun disappears, and lightning hits, and thunder, and we are in a huge storm. And I mean, it was like we drove into a waterfall. It was just, all the cars came to like a screeching halt. Everybody's got their flashers on. You know those um, those orange uh, canister things that are in the center of the, the freeway, and they fill them with water and all? One of them flew over our car. Um, it was crazy. And I remember... I. I'm sitting there, the baby is, is starting to cry, and it's, you know, when a baby starts screaming, everybody gets a little bit tense, and I'm playing with the baby's face, and I'm playing with the little binky, and my daughter in the back seat starts crying because she's getting so scared, and I, I am just at peace. I can't explain it, but I'm absolutely at peace. I'm just playing with this little boy, and I'm praying, Lord, Take care of my son-in-law as he drives us through this. Lord, give peace to my daughter in the back seat who's so scared. Lord, keep us safe. But if today's the day, I'm coming. I'm ready. There is something amazing when the peace of God is just in you. You can be sitting in the most horrific or frightening situation, but God can make you fruitful in that place. All right. Fruitful means the ability to trust God when you realize you have no control. Back to our story. So Joseph is now in charge of all of the grain and all the people all over the region, right? And so anybody who the, the, the seven years of plentiful is done, so we're now in the seven years of famine, and so anybody who wants to buy grain has to go to Joseph. That's what they have to do. And of course, his brothers and his father, they run out of grain. So it's time for them to go to Egypt in order to ask the second man below Pharaoh, which is Joseph, if they can buy grain. But the thing of it is, the brothers don't have any idea that this is their brother Joseph. Even when they walk in to buy the grain, they don't recognize him. They do not realize it's their brother. So uh, let's see. Let's go to Genesis 45, starting with verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, 
have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. Yep, the one you sold to Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Okay, he's doing something amazing, absolutely unexpected. They're terrified because he has every right to just kill them. He, he could just, hey, you know what? They're out of here. They all get to be murdered because of what they did. But that's not what he does. He actually shoos everybody away because he so, he's so excited. He can't wait to say, I'm your brother. I'm Joseph. I love you. It's okay. And don't be scared. I'm going to take care of you. And then he says, yeah, I know. Yes, you sold me to Egypt, but God had a bigger plan because it was to save lives that God sent ahead of me. You need to understand that during this famine, a lot of people could have starved to death and God knew exactly who to give this project to. It was a man that he could trust with this, with this job and it was Joseph. And so now Joseph recognizes that God had great purpose in mind for him, even though he had no control over anything that was going on. In verse 6, it says, For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. So they're two years into the famine. And he says in verse 7, But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of of all Egypt, come down to me. Don't delay. Again, he knows it's God. It's not Pharaoh. It's not the leader of the prison. It's not Potiphar. It's God that is in control, and he knows it. Verse 10, you shall live in the region of Goshen, Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herd, all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Joseph knows fully well that God is in charge of everything that is happening right now. And he also knows that, his, that, that he is a full story. He started at 17 and now he's in his 30s, and his, the purpose of his life has become so apparent to him. Some of us, you're, you're in prison still, and you're like, I can't see. I can't see the other end. Some of you, you've been sold off to this or that. You're sitting in a cistern. Right? 
some of you, you're in a place in the middle of your story and you're losing hope. You're, you're getting scared. You're, you're thinking, oh, this is so out of control. But the truth of it is God knows the number of your days and you are not done. You are not done. So don't get discouraged in the middle of your story. And don't take your eyes off of God in the middle of your story. Because God has great purpose for those who trust him with their whole story. All right. Man stopped trusting God back in the garden. And ever since then, God has been trying to convince us to trust him again. So what do we do when we realize we have absolutely no control and we let God control? We give our trust to God. I've got a few things for you to write down, take a picture of, or just think about, all right? Things you can't control, nor should you. First thing is others. You know you can't control others, right? But we keep trying. I don't know why. We do keep trying. We, we, try to, we try to manipulate someone into doing what it is that we want them to do. And we really have absolutely no control over, over somebody else. You know what's powerful? Is when you start praying for that person. There is something amazing and powerful when you are praying for someone. And be patient. Don't pray and say, all right, by Tuesday, you better have this whole thing solved, God, or I'm out. It doesn't work that way. Start praying for those people that you would like to control, but you're really not supposed to. Ask God to take control. My mom used to say to me, um, tell, tell God your husband's weaknesses and tell your husband his strengths. That's, you got to write that one down. Tell, tell, tell your husband his strengths and tell God his weaknesses. There is something, when you're looking at someone and you want to try to do, pray to God about what is difficult with them, but tell them what their strengths are and watch what happens. Just watch what happens. All right. Things you can't control, nor should you, every single outcome. It is exhausting to try to, to control and manipulate every single outcome. My kids can't stand it when they say to me, they go, okay, mom, will you pray that I'll get this new job? I this job is going to just solve everything. Mom, pray that I get this job. And I say to them, I'm going to pray that if this is the right job for you, that God's going to open all the right doors and that you're going to be under the, the right manager and that this is going to be beautiful. But I'm also going to pray, Lord, if this is not the right job for you, I'm going to pray that he shuts every door and don't you dare bang that door down because it is a whole lot harder to get out of a job six months later that you realize I wasn't supposed to be here in the first place, but you banged every door down. My kids hate it when I do that. But the truth of it is, I want God's will for my kids just as much as I want it for myself. And here's the other thing that I think we forget. If the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is powerful enough for us to have eternal life, why is it not powerful enough for what we're dealing with today? If, if Jesus could save us on the cross so that we're going to spend eternity in heaven? Why can't we trust him with our next job, with our kids, with our marriage, with our lives? Why not? That gospel is true today just as much as it is for the end of our lives. 
Go to looking at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. I just want you to look at it up on the screen. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? You know, faith, the other word for faith is trust. If you don't know what faith is, it's trust. It means I trust God. I can't see it. I don't know what it is, but I trust him. Examine yourselves to see what your faith looks like. He says, go ahead, try it. And see what happens. Don't you realize that Jesus Christ is living in you? If you've accepted Christ into your heart, do you know he's in there? Talk to him. Oh my goodness. Examine yourself and let's watch what God does. Things you can control and you should. The lies we believe. Nobody lies to you more than the person in the mirror. If there is a friend or someone in your life that that they love you, they care about you, and every time that they try to talk to you about something in particular, you get defensive, you cut them off, you tell them you don't know what you're talking about. If there's someone like that in your life, can I challenge you to listen to them, to sit down and pause? The other lies are the lies that the devil tells us. He says that we're not worthy, that we're not forgiven, that we're not good enough. The devil lies to us every single day. And that is a bondage. Lies keep us in bondage. John eight thirty two. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's not just knowing it. It is putting that truth into practice that sets us free. The more we lie to ourselves the more we're in bondage. The more we believe the lies of the devil, the more we're in bondage. I'm going to give you four truths that I want you to hold on to. And whenever anything starts to, whenever the enemy starts to poke at you and try to tell you you are not worthy, I want you to put it up against these four truths. Number one, God is good. Number two, Jesus has four given me. You know, you can't earn it. It is grace. Jesus has forgiven you. Number three, I'm loved. You are loved. Don't let anybody tell you you're not. And number four, everything is possible with God. Everything is possible with God. Y'all still writing? All right. Things you can control and you should. What we allow in our mind. I want to show you some scripture that absolutely blew me away. When the laws were being written in the Old Testament in, in Deuteronomy, it says, Deuteronomy 6, 5 says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. But when Jesus walked on this earth, do you know what he said? Matthew 22, 7, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. He changed the wording. You know why? We're in a battle for our mind. We're watching social media, um, uh, anxiety, depression. It's just 
everything is elevated right now. Why? Because there's this battle going on for our mind. And you know, the devil has no right in there. If he is getting in your head, he's a squatter. It is time to evict him from your head. But don't give him any, any footholds. Guard what you watch. Guard what you see. Guard the shows you watch, the things you listen to. I'm always trying to put the word of God in my head, and I'm not kidding you because I know that when you stand at a place like this, the enemy has a target on your back. I listen to, to good Bible teaching on a regular basis. Many of you listen to worship, and that's all wonderful, but maybe it's time to listen to a really good Bible teacher. As I drive to work every day, I listen to it because I want the word of God in here. I do not want to give the enemy any space to bring in his baggage because I have no time for that. And he is not allowed to squat in there. All right, how to trust God again, and I'm going to wrap it up. Don't be a see, I knew it person. Some of you may not think that you are, but sometimes it's easy to do. So you know what? I told the truth and I got fired. See, I knew it. I did the right thing and they don't want to hang out with me anymore. See, I knew it. If you spend your life being a see, I knew it person, you will not be able to see what God is doing. If we're looking at ourselves and those things more than we're looking at what God's doing, we're out of balance. Okay? All right. Next one is don't go, I'm sorry, let go of unforgiveness. If, if there's someone in your life that you just, you're like, I can't. I can't. You don't understand what they did to me. You don't understand how they hurt me. Look at what Joseph did. Look at how he forgave and reconciled with his brothers and his family. He had every right to, to keep them in, un, in unforgiveness. But the truth of it is, he knows he doesn't want the baggage of that. And just as information, did you know there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness? Reconciliation is what Joseph did. That should be our first motive, is I want to reconcile a relationship back with you again. That is what God did. He reconciled us back to him with Jesus on the cross. There are, there are some people, though, that having establishing a relationship again is not going to happen. And I'm sorry for that. But don't you keep the unforgiveness in your heart. Set it free. Set them free. And who knows, maybe God will bring it back into reconciliation, but you make sure that you're not carrying around unforgiveness because there's people in our lives that we have to figure out how to forgive, especially if we want God to be in control of our lives. And be a benefit of the doubt person. My kids laugh at me all the time. They say that I wear rose-colored glasses, and I'm perfectly fine with that because the truth of it is there is something great about being the benefit of the doubt person. You know, when, when, when you go to Starbucks and the gal that helps you is mean or rude or whatever, the first thing I think in my head was, I wonder if they're having a bad day. I wonder if they're sad today. Lord, I don't know what's going on with them, but will you take care of them? If you start giving people the benefit of the doubt, do you know you'll find fewer mean people in your life? You don't even realize it. It's really easy to point out all the mean people, but if you start giving them all the benefit of the doubt, there's something about, they're not, there's no more, more mean people running around. But here's what's funny. My kids go, well, you just don't get it, Mom. You're being duped. Go ahead and dupe me. The Lord is with me. 
Amen? Let him dupe you. Keep those rose-colored glasses. Get a good pair that fit well. Okay? <laughs> All right. And love your neighbor. When Jesus was walking on this earth, he made it abundantly clear that we are to love the Lord our God and love our neighbor as ourselves. If we got that one rule right, you know, we wouldn't need any laws. We wouldn't need any rules if we all figured out how to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. Um, one of the th- ways that I, that I do this that is, is really powerful, and I want to share it with you. We all know that in Corinthians, it says, um, love is patient, love is kind. What's the next one? Love keeps no record of wrong. Love keeps no record of wrong. There's also love is long-suffering, and nobody likes that one either. But love keeps no record of wrong. If I were to ask you why you don't like your Uncle Joe, I bet you could put this huge list and go, well, let me tell you all the reasons that I do not like Uncle Joe. The longer you keep this list, the harder it will be to love your Uncle Joe. And you know what's funny is after a while, we start looking for stuff. You know what? He rolled his eyes. I'm adding that to my list. If you are keeping record of wrong, you cannot fully love. Throw the record away. There are people in your life that you have to love because if you don't, it's just going to, Uncle Joe's going to be at Thanksgiving dinner and his wife, Aunt Susie, is not going to appreciate the fact that you still don't like her husband. It is time to throw away your list of all the reasons why you hate somebody. Start making a list of what you, you could or, or should love about them. Ask God to show you how to love them like he loves them. It is time for us to love our neighbor above ourselves. If we are building up the kingdom of us every day, if I build the kingdom of Heather, Heather every day, by the end of my life, what do I have? I have a legacy of me and only me. I don't want a legacy of me. I want a legacy of how many people did I get to lift up? How many people did I get to love them? How many people did God let me love through whatever it is he wanted to do? That's the story I want to have of my life. That's the legacy I want to have. So today is the day that we're going to say no more. God, we want you in control. I don't want to run my life anymore. I'm not good at it. I'm really not good at it. But you, God, oh, you know what you're doing. So I'm done running my life. I want you to run my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we want to be daughters that, that you can entrust us with whatever situation's going on. We want, we want to know that you are with us in the midst of every situation in our life. Every relationship, every decision, every hurt, and every healing, God. We want you to be in control. So for, from this day forward, God, we give you full control of us every part of our life, and we trust you, that you already know the numbers of our days, and that by the end of it, you're going to say, well done, good and faithful daughter. Thank you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.